Interview number 108, Ruth Stotter, working with props in storytelling performances. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling. This is Brother Wolf, and I am so thrilled that you have come here, that you have found your way here, that you are as interested and as fascinated and as just mm, passionate about storytelling as I am. Because I, mm, this guest, oh, I know, I know I say this over and over again, but, but it's true, it's true. This guest holds, she holds a pearl. She is a pearl of wisdom of the storytelling community. She has been around the block and back. She has seen many of the great storytellers who have passed into the, the next life. She has, she has seen the storytelling revival take place. She is, in fact, an author, a writer, and a storyteller herself. Her name is Ruth Stoddard. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on my show. It's my pleasure. So, Ruth has told stories in Indonesia, Australia, France, Canada, Malaysia, and all over the United States. She had a radio show in, for six years in San Francisco, was director of the Dominican University Storytelling Program. She's a folklorist, and she has a Master of Arts in Storytelling. Ruth, do you have a story you could share with us? Of course I do. And as a storyteller, I, I care passionately about veracity and verisimilitude. And this story is truth to an uh, inch. When I was a little girl, my best friend was Catherine Jane. Catherine Jane had beautiful red hair and blue eyes, and she had an Aunt Matilda. I love to go visit Aunt Matilda because she was a good cook, and I have always been inordinately fond of good food. Aunt Matilda won first prize at the Wisconsin State Fair nearly every year, one year for her pickles, one year for her chocolate cake, one year for her carrot souffle. So one day, Catherine Jane said, Pokey, that was my name when I was a little girl, Pokey, let's get on our bikes and ride out to Aunt Matilda's farm. And I said, all right. So we jumped on our bikes. I called my bike Blue Wind, and she called her bike White Horse. We'd read a Carl Sandburg story. And we rode our bikes as quickly as we could to Aunt Matilda's farm. And she said, oh, girls, I'm so sorry you came today. I tried a new recipe, and I made a mistake. I'll go to the store, and I'll get some more flour. You girls play around the farm while I'm gone. So she got in her car, and this was a long time ago. We had to go in front of the car and wind it around and around and around and then jump out of the way as Catherine Jane's Aunt Matilda drove down the road. And she was gone. We had the farm all to ourselves. First we walked down the fence. Then we went in and chased the chickens. And, and then we decided to jump in the barn. We would go up the ladder and then jump down on the hay. But then I got hungry and I said, Catherine Jane... Let's go in the house, see if there's anything to eat. She agreed. And when we went in the kitchen, there on the table 
were eight strawberry shortcakes. It doesn't look like she made a mistake. They look delicious. It's a good idea to take a walk when you're hungry. It gets your mind off of it, Catherine Jane told me. And so I did. I walked around that kitchen table 116 times. It didn't take my mind off of being hungry. So I reached over and I took a strawberry. Mm. And then I sat down. And Catherine Jane sat down. And when we looked up, we had eaten all eight strawberry shortcakes. But I couldn't see Catherine Jane. She'd eaten five strawberry shortcakes. And I ate three. And when I looked at her, she was on top of her chair about two and a half inches tall. And I was on my chair about six inches tall. We better get out of here before Aunt Matilda gets back. She has a terrible temper. So we slid down a leg of the chair. There was a crack under the door. We slid under it, and Aunt Matilda's rooster saw us. He thought we were two tasty bugs, and he started chasing us, and we're yelling, Help! Help! But our voices were so little. And then we saw a man down at the barn. He was putting up a big circus poster. When I was a little girl, you got free tickets to the circus if you let them put up these posters. So we were yelling, help, mister, help, but he didn't hear us. So we jumped in his bucket of paste, and the rooster came and stuck his head in. And we're in there. Do you know how to tread water? Well, let me tell you, it's really hard in paste. And the man put his brush in, and Catherine Jane grabbed some of the fibers, and he slapped her against the bar, and he said, ew. A bug in my paste. And then he took her in his hand, and Catherine Jane said his eyes got enormous as he stared at her, and she's yelling, Get my friend! Get my friend! And I'm in there, Help! Help! Another one? And he pulled me out, and he said, Am I glad I found you girls? Well, we were glad too, but do you know why he was glad? He sold us to the circus. Oh, you might ask your mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, aunt, or uncle. They might have seen us. We traveled all over. We went to Evansville, Indiana, Sonoma, California, New York City, New York, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. They built a special tent for us and a little house. We had a little barbecue and a little hammock, a little swimming pool. And people would come in, and they would get these special glasses that make things big. And they would look at us, and they'd say things like, Aren't they cute? They look almost real. And Catherine Jane would say, We are real. Oh, isn't that sweet? (laughs) They think they're real. We traveled all over, and one day the circus came back to Madison, Wisconsin, where we lived. And Aunt Matilda was in the audience. And when she saw us, did I tell you she has a terrible temper? She came storming down. She grabbed us and said, You bad girls, I told you not to eat that. Now you make yourselves big again and come home with me. And I said, well, we'd like to, but we don't know how. That's typical of you, Pokey. You always know how to get Catherine Jane in trouble. Now start running. I thought she wanted us to run away from her, but she made us run around the house in the swimming pool, around and around, and she kept putting her thumb on our forehead. And finally she said, all right, you're hot enough. Stretch. So I stretched and stretched till I was five foot four, The perfect height, I thought. Catherine Jane stretched till she was five foot eight, so she was taller than me and slimmer. Well, we got an Aunt Matilda. First, we went to the owner of the circus, and we asked him for some money because we'd been traveling with him. 
And he was furious. He said, you realize what I've spent on you girls? The real estate, the swimming pool. And rather than argue, we left. And as we were driving home, I said, Aunt Matilda, I called her that, would you tell me what the mistake was you made in that recipe? No, I'm not going to tell you girls. I win first prize at the state fair. It would affect my entire reputation. Well, Aunt Matilda passed away some years ago. So I can tell you when she finally did tell us what the mistake was. She put in too much shortening. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> it's part of a series of about 10 Catherine Jane stories. And my husband was very disappointed when I took him out for, for a surprise birthday party. He thought he was going to meet Catherine Jane. The whole party took place. And on the way home, he said it was a lovely party, but I didn't get to meet Catherine Jane. There's something about a really good tall tale that you get into it and you go away believing some essential part of it is totally true. So you're, so we think, oh, you know, it's obvious, you know, no one could be short, but you believe this other part. In this story, when you tell it, do you have any props? No, that's a story I've never used a prop for. So what are some ways you use props? Well, I, I enjoy using, uh, puppets, masks, felt boards, music, uh, magic tricks, like sometimes in a story, if the prince comes in the middle of a fairy tale, the king might say, one moment, prince, the royal magician is here, and then do a magic trick, and then go back, and then what was it, prince, and just embedding it within the story. I would never do an entire program using props, but for at least one story, I like to use something, and it changes the audience's intensity. It changes the look on their face. It would, I recently did a program at a planetarium where one story had three puppets and as soon as I pulled them out you felt everyone in the room lean forward to look and their eyes got wider and smiles appeared and it just changes the, the energy of what's going on. But a prop can be something very simple like um, I might use one to introduce the theme of a story, an African story, and here it's showing an African basket. And there may or may not be a basket in the story, but it kind of helps take us over into the other place. So my friend asked a Native American if she could tell the story he told, and he said, yes, but I'd like you to take this. And he traced his hand, and he said, before you tell it, I'd like every child you tell to in the school setting this was to place their hand on this hand so they have a connection with me the one who told you this story. Simple prop, but could be very, very powerful. I like to do origami. Once I was doing a Valentine's story at a Montessori school, and I told a story that the culmination is the little strip of red paper becomes a heart. Well, as soon as I pulled out the little strip of red paper, all these little children, three and a half to four and a half, leaned forward, and they were watching my every move as I folded the paper and told the story. And when I finished with the heart, they gasped. I'd never had that response from the story. And the teacher smiled and said, we taught them how to make that heart yesterday, but they hadn't heard the story. So that was fun. In that same school, a few years earlier, I had a magic trick it's a board that has levers on the back so that you can make two eyes appear and a mouth appear. And so I had the children draw a heart for Valentine's Day and a little arrow and lace and trim it. And then the eyes looked around and counted how many children were in the room. And the mouth began to talk. And then I explained to the heart that I was going to tell a story. Would it please sit on the side and be quiet? 
Well, that heart kept interrupting me. It kept interrupting me. And finally I said, you are going to have to go. And I turned my back to the children, took a cloth out, and erased it as the heart said, no, 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 no. When I turned around, they were crying. They hadn't known that heart three minutes before. And now, if I was cruel enough to do that to their friend, the heart that they helped create, what kind of person was I? And it took a story or two to win back their their friendship. But it was a good lesson for me how quickly, not just children, but adults too, if we believe in the object, the puppet or the mask, and transfer our belief to it and respect it, the audience will too. And so obviously if you just reach down and pull up a mask or pull up a puppet and push it over your hand and suddenly it says hello, it's just a piece of material on your hand. But if the minute you look at it lying on the floor, it's something, a friend, someone you know, and you you pick it up with, with true reverence as it goes on your hand. And when you take it off, you carefully place it down. It becomes a believable object that adds and not detracts from the story. It's not always easier to tell a story with a prop. It can be more difficult because you really have to think about all the little ins and outs of the height and how far in front of you. And when you're talking to the prop, if it's a puppet, that you're always looking at it every minute as it talks. And you, just as you create two characters in a story, you don't turn side to side. You kind of profile yourself. So the same thing with the puppets, as if it's a tandem storytelling event. With masks, the same thing. Sometimes I use a mask as a puppet. I just put it on my hand, and it becomes a character, and we can have a, a dialogue. I, I love to use masks, too, and I love to have the children participate in storytelling, and you can do this with both puppets and masks. There's one uh, popular story called Jack and the Animals, and I like to have the children be the animals. So they put on the cat mask, the dog mask, the pig mask, and and they ask Jack if they can travel along with them. And then I have them sing the song, Oh, We Ain't Got a Barrel of Money. Maybe we're ragged and funny. And I like to have every child that's there eventually be in this chain. So that one story takes 45 minutes when I'm at the Montessori School. And once I ran out of animals. Somebody brought their sister or brother, and I didn't have enough masks. But I did have the blue fairy mask. So the blue fairy joined the group with all the other animals when they went to the house where the robbers come. And I think that added to the telling. It was just fun. And then when the boys and girls saw those same masks used in other stories on other visits, there was a relationship with them. It was just like the storyteller coming back. There's the cow again. There's the horse again uh, used in another story. Felt bored. Uh, I was wary about using. I tend not to like um, very, I'm always worried about being boring and manipulative. Uh, and so it was harder for me to figure out how to be creative with a felt board. And one way that I enjoy using it is handing out the shapes to the children. And so if a little boy is in his room and he has expects, so he can see what everything is made out of, and he looks at his pillow, his feather pillow, and it turns into, and the child that's holding the goose knows, and they crawl up sometimes in diapers, and they put their goose 
uh, where the pillow is. And his mother brought him some juice, and it was its orange color. And, and he drank and thought, I wonder where this came from. The child with the orange tree comes up and puts it on the felt board. Now, I don't mind if they put it upside down or sideways. Some people would prefer that everything is exactly right. But uh, I'm just thrilled that they connected, they're part of the story, that they contributed and, and put their, their shape up on the board. Uh, there is a felt board that a woman made, I think, in Michigan that you can wear around your head and you lay the objects on the flat board in front of you and then the board is over your chest. So you can walk around doing a walking felt board story. And for some venues, that's a lot of fun to do, too. Hi, this is Lynn Ford from Columbus, Ohio. I'm standing at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. For someone who's overseas, any hints on on making one, or if you don't have access to to making like a to making a, a felt board, uh, it's as simple as taking a large piece of cardboard, folding it in half, and putting a piece of felt over it. And then on the back of any paper object or cloth object that you use, if you put a, a tiny piece of felt, particularly I like those little sticky things that you put under furniture to. Uh, keep objects from scratching because you don't have to glue it or do anything. You just stick it right on. It's very easy to uh, create a felt board. There, you also can buy really beautiful uh, felt boards on stands. But I kind of like the idea that you can just, and I show the children, I would never have it set up before they came. I like them to see the piece of cardboard and then the felt going over it and being tucked in so the edges don't show and then it becomes a little theater. Uh, I like the idea of as much as they can participate. Even paper um, a plate turning into paper plates turning into a mask that they've created. Maybe they've created a series of characters, and you look them over and and see. Oh, yeah, I have a story with a farmer or a man and this, and you can use their plates, and they can come up and use their plates as puppets and characters in the story. That brings up a really interesting point, and that is asking for volunteers when you're telling a story and you need someone. Like I have one story where I have two puppets and I need a hand, literally, figuratively, to do the third puppet. And so I need a volunteer. And I've sat behind children who have said, oh, I hope she picks me. I hope she picks me. Oh, she didn't pick me. I'm not going to watch this story. And it's, it's devastating. Once I saw a storyteller from our area say to the audience, I need a volunteer for this story. 30 hands shut up. I would like somebody who's been to Paris. Half the hands went down. I would like someone who knows how to ride a bicycle backwards. Another half the hands went down. I'd like someone with a PhD. I mean, they didn't know what any of these things were. These are very small children. But one little boy was still waving his hand. So she said, all right. And the other children didn't mind because they had voluntarily taken their hands down. They didn't have a PhD. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... I thought that that was very interesting. Okay, that that is brilliant. I mean, really brilliant and makes this entire hour so worthwhile for anyone listening. You just take that one little wisdom right there and you expand it. There's so many different ways we as performers could use the information Ruth just gave us. So, um, and also, you don't necessarily have to have one person be the volunteer. If you have a tree, for example, in the story and you want... Uh, there's a story that just came out in the, the new book, Holiday Tales, by Teresa Miller, 
uh, an Arbor Day story, and a little bird asks a maple tree, can I stay in your branches all winter? No, I don't like little birds. And asks another tree, can I stay in your branches? No, I'm meditating. You'll make too much noise. So you don't have to have, if you decide to enact the story as you're telling it, you don't have to have one child be the maple tree. You can have three children with their arms locked all together be the maple tree, and they can all say that line together. Uh, and then finally, uh, fir tree and cedar tree tell the child, the little bird with the broken wing, you can stay with us. We'll feed you and take care of you. And that's why some trees keep their leaves all winter long because they helped little bird. It's a fun story to have the children enact even the first time, even when they haven't heard it and they watch it take place, or to tell it and then have them enact it after you've told it, uh, which is, again, bringing in another art form. Um, another um, audience participation, I don't, again, this is my personality and my bias. I don't like to manipulate an audience so that to say something like, every time I say cat, I want you to say meow. If, if I'm in the audience, when they do that, I'll say woof, woof, just because, uh, not really, I'm kidding. But the uh, but I love eliciting participation from an audience. So in that same situation, he walked down the road and he saw a cat, an angry cat. And the cat said, hand your ear, look at the audience expectantly, and they'll all say meow. And without your pointing at them and, and pulling it from them, it becomes organic and more fun. Uh, in the story, the little red hen is one example, um, and I like to kind of teach a little while I'm telling. So instead of the little red hen just asking a dog, "Will you help me?" No, will you asking the cow, "Will you help me?" No, I like him to say, "Ask a very sleepy cow, will you help me?" And then how would the cow say, "No, I won't help you," when it's really very sleepy or very angry or, or very um, t- tired? Will be the same, uh, shy, a very shy. A uh, little pig that's asked, like, no, 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 I, you know, what? So it's fun to develop that. And that could be one child, two children, the whole audience in different animals in different groups. Or they could all be the little red hen saying, I can do it all by myself, that they say that line all together in unison. So that's kind of fun to choreograph a story with that kind of audience participation. When are props too much? You know, I, I've seen props done badly more than I've seen them do well. So where is that line? I don't know that. I think what you said is right on the right on target. Um, I don't think there is too much if it's done beautifully. Um, it's how it's done, and, and part of it is the belief and the dedication that it's not just a throw away. I don't think this is very interesting. I'm going to throw something in. I've seen people use two wooden spoons from their kitchen as puppets, nothing painted on them, no decoration. And you know they love each other. The minute they're held up, you feel the tension. And I think that's the secret, is really caring about what you're using, not just an extra thing that you're flinging this mask around or this puppet around, that it it truly is an organic part of the story. Uh, certainly you can tell the story without the prop. Sometimes I use the prop just to rehearse. If I have a king in a story, and I feel like I'm he's generic, he's just like every other king in every other story, so I have a couple of king puppets, so I'll pull a king puppet out, and I'll rehearse the story with that king saying his lines. And I might never tell the story bringing that king, but when he has his lines, I like kind of become that 
puppet, and it frees me or gives me some advice or direction. Uh, so that's another way to use props, just as a rehearsal kind of technique to put on a mask. When I wear a mask in a store, I usually only become one character. I have done it with masks on my elbows and the back of my head. Once on the top of my head as a character, so if you're becoming like a wolf, the character is, is there. Uh, but usually it's just on my face, and they're usually the kind of masks that stop at your nose, so just cover the upper part of your face so your mouth is still free, and you can easily slide them up and they don't show, and then just go on with the story, and then when the character comes back. I think the first story I ever used a mask in way, way back was The Gunny Wolf, which was a very popular story. Do you know that story? Um, and Gunny Wolf chases a little girl, trip-tropped. Trip, and uh, when the Gunny Wolf uh, comes chasing her, I would put the little mask on, and it's so interesting that uh, children can be very frightened sometimes. They watch, right? They they know you. They've seen you. They see you put the mask on, and it's perfectly all right to do that. If you look around and everybody looks frightened, it's okay to peek under the mask and put it back on. Um, you're still you as a person. I think that in all performance um, that the storyteller and the story together make the experience. And um, I often say that if you left a performance and you said, if I heard people walking away when I had been part of a Oleo, and they said, oh, I love the story Ruth told. I What was it? I can't remember what it was, but I love the way she told it. I wouldn't be very happy to hear that. Or if I heard the person say, I love the story about the handless maiden. Who told that? Was that Laura or Diana Ruth? I wouldn't be too happy. I want them to say, I love the way Ruth told the handless maiden. And so owning the story, making it your own, and letting your own personality, trusting who you are, I think is part of it. And, and um, although I have to confess that when I start teaching a new class and someone says I'm an actor or an actress that's, and I've decided to come into storytelling or an engineer, this it works a, a different way with that profession, something inwardly smiles within me because I know I'm going to have the most work with the actor and the actress and the engineer. And I also know that they're going to be better than anyone else at the end of the semester. With the actors and actresses, they're so used to totally becoming the character that they are very protective of who they are. And so I have to figure out exercises that open them up so that they can become the narrator and the we will get double our money's worth. We'll get to know that person and that story. But they have the timing and the voices and the physicality. They have all the that part of the experience. They just need the heart and soul of the storyteller. So I laugh and um, welcome them to the class. With the engineers and um, mathematicians, this will sound a little strange, but remember, uh, I'm from California. All I have to do is work on their projecting, making eye contact, and talking loud enough so that everyone can hear them. And they become the best because there's something so intense going on in their mind. They see that story so clearly. It's never just, uh, I walked in a forest. They're seeing the forest. And if I say, stop, everyone in the class, draw a picture of the forest. Most people draw the kind of forest that Teller was seeing in their mind. 
If someone else is telling a story and said, I walk through the forest, stop, draw a forest. Some might draw a birch forest, some a redwood forest, whatever forest they're familiar with. So there's something magical and passing images on. And the sad thing is, if you memorize, you the teller themselves is seeing in their mind where the page turns and the letters, and that's what they're transmitting. Often in the audience, we can tell exactly when the page break came, and we're seeing T-R-E-E. So it's really worth it, I think, to take the time to envision what the story is about. You, you gave this example before of seeing someone with two kitchen spoons, and you were talking about um, how they were able to show attention between the two spoons, how they were able to show love between the two spoons and, and love for the spoons. And I just wanted to know more about that, about how you become comfortable with your props. You know, what what steps or what... I mean, I've seen people use props and masks and um, it, it separates them from the audience. You know, there there's an extra layer instead of one less layer. Uh, yes, I, I know exactly what you mean. And there's a difference between the teller going to the audience and the audience having to come to the teller. And I think sometimes the prop, the, the mask, the puppet is an example of where the audience comes to the teller. But for variety, that's why I wouldn't want to do that with every story. But for a, a beat, for a part of the story, I think that changes the energy and it adds an interest, it adds an element to the, to the story. Um, if you did the entire story, entire program with puppets as a puppeteer, that's an entirely different experience. The entire program wearing masks and enacting the story, that's an entirely different experience as well. But at the same time I'm saying the storyteller goes to the audience, there is something that is so um, seductive to do as a storyteller. And that's the, uh, I don't know how to say it in a kinder way than the inappropriate smile. And so it's the sugary, leaning forward, smiling. And the story might be, um, and the wolf came to the door. And, and uh, that's not a happy, smiling bit of the story and much better to to be in the mood in the spirit of what's actually happening and, and use your smile when it's when it's appropriate so what what i'm hearing you saying is that sometimes people are using props because they're not relating to the audience correctly on their own and they're using the props as as a place to defend themselves as a place to keep the audience at a distance you know, so someone with a sugary smile, they might be using a prop thinking, oh, I can get this prop to attract the audience's attention. I, I, I'm thinking in particular, I have a, I've talked about this before on a couple of shows. I have a Civil War show. Um, and when I first started doing the show, I had a lot of props. And I probably still have too many props. I mean, I've, I have uh, costumes from each side. And, but in the beginning, I had, I, I had these swords and I had these backpacks and all this crap. And that over time, as I've done the show, I've just stopped bringing it. I don't need it anymore. Because when I first started, I was just so nervous about doing the show. It was sort of an older high school audience show. I wasn't comfortable. So I had all this material. I mean, between the flags, and the, I had to do three trips just to bring all this stuff in. You know? <laughs> and 
and and I've seen that development in me of getting more and more comfortable with the material and needing the props less and less. Bringing and going, you know, why did I bring this? It's sitting there. I sat there the whole show. I never touched it. Well, it could add atmosphere. I mean, I can envision the things, your items you're saying set behind you, around you, that you don't refer to them at all. Or maybe you do refer to them. Oh, I remember when I wore that uniform when, uh, or um, that pack had held. Would you believe I lived for 10 days and what was held in that pack and whatever. So I could see using them without touching them, uh, too. Yes, um I think that that does happen and can happen, and uh, but that's the same as a storyteller telling a, a story that they've heard another teller tell that they're not, it's not really theirs. It's using something that isn't part of you yet, and it does take time. And after a while, there's nothing like experience and doing in even the same story that if you've told it uh, uh, many, many times, it gets seasoned with your tellings. But my bottom line is that I think props can be a wonderful enrichment and enhancement to the story when selectively used, used well with with thought and consideration, and that you care uh, enough that you really want to share this this object with the audience or it makes some message. I like to do origami stories where I fold the paper and tell the story while I'm folding it and holding a shape up. And that's a, a different kind of storytelling because obviously... I'm not as important as what's happening to the piece of paper. It's kind of a, ooh, look at that. And the same thing with string stories. Frequently, they become an example of showing the, the what a piece of string can do. But I like that, too, because uh, I like the idea that something as simple as a paper plate, as simple as a piece of felt on a felt board, as simple as a piece of string, as simple as a piece of paper, can become this magical object that takes on whole lives and worlds and becomes a a variety of different things. And you don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to buy this fancy felt board on a stand. You don't have to buy the pre-made puppets that are really gorgeous. But you can use a very a sock with two eyes. Uh, Ken Fight, a very incredible. Have you heard of Ken Fight? He, he died many, many years ago. But he was a um, Jesuit priest for a while and a Japanese monk for a while. And came back and traveled as an itinerant storyteller. And one story he told used a puppet. He just took his sock off and put it over his hand and put his fingers in it. And he and the sock had a conversation. The sock had been to a dinner party. And there were only men there, 12 men. And one of the men left early. Do you think he'll come back? Well, we're waiting. And suddenly the enormity of the story that he's telling with this simple sock was just amazing. But... He believed that's, and we believed that's in that sock. It wasn't, it, in front of our eyes, it became no longer a sock from Ken Fight's foot, but it became a living being that had been to this momentous occasion, this event. So intention is probably a, uh, a key word, and that goes with, um, with storytelling too. I did a, a sad thing to myself for three years. I gave all my children's storytelling engagements to my students, including this Montessori school that I went to four times a year. So I gave that for three years to different students so they could say on their resume that they had told stories at all these various venues. 
And one day I realized I was so sad I hadn't been I'd only been doing adult storytelling and that I actually loved children more than stories. If I had to make a choice in my life, you can never tell another story if you but you can work with children or you can never see children again but you can tell stories to adults. I would definitely take working with children because I think they are the next generation. I, the older I get, the more I appreciate this and I see their imaginations blossom and how open they are to new concepts and how much they love story. Which brings up another point which is again off on a side road. But many people say, I love the grim fairy tales. And people say, oh, the violence in the grim fairy tales. You you can't tell those to children. Well, first of all, children love violence. They love the dragon being slain and the giant being slain. They know about those things. Get in there and clean up your room right now. You get in this car. I'm not waiting another minute. They know about dragons and giants. And maybe they haven't thought about it in that way but subconsciously they're the little child in that story and imagine slaying the giant with nine heads or whatever the journey is they can really identify with that and it's never uh, violently like the cartoons or the movies there's never blood and in fact as a child growing up I really loved the grim fairy tales as a child. In fact, I think they saved me and, and taught me uh, never give up, try, try, try again, because you have to try, try, try again. Uh, if you don't help the person that needs help, you might be turned into a stone. Your heart literally can turn to stone if you ignore every homeless, helpless person in your life and just look after yourself. So there were like lessons that in the tales that came through. One story, I can't think of the title right now, but the uh, princess cuts off the heads of would-be suitors, and so the walkway to the palace is lined with these heads on sticks. I just thought that was the most beautiful image, all these sticks with these handsome men's heads. I actually heard that story uh, two weeks ago um, at the Smithsonian, a Welsh storyteller. Um, I can't remember his name, but he told that story. Ah, And how did you feel when he described the heads on the sticks? I felt like that was a good metaphor for what happens to young men when they try to get a date with a young woman. <laughs> yeah, I think there is a lot of symbolism uh, going on in the fairy tales. Uh, don't accept substitutes. Uh, a lot of little things that, that happen. I think they're good teaching tales. Uh, in the world of storytelling, there's a grim fairy tale. It's not very well known. It's called uh, The Weird Musician, sometimes The Strange Musician, and most often, the most wonderful musician in the world. And it's about a musician, although I think of him as a storyteller, who goes into the forest determined to practice so he will be the most wonderful musician in the world. And while he's practicing, a wolf hears him and comes and says, Oh, teach me, musician, teach me how to, to play your, your violin. If you're going to be my student, you have to do what I say. And unlike any other tale in the Grimm Collection, there's cruelty to animals, without something transformational happening to the animal. He ties the the wolf to a tree. And a fox, he who also wants to learn how to play, he puts in a ditch. And a rabbit, he puts vines around. And then a woodsman comes with his axe and just listens. Just listens. And then the other animals get free and they come to attack the musician. And the woodsman stands with his axe protecting the musician. Till he finishes, and then he 
gets up, goes out into the world where he becomes the best musician in the world. Well, when I first read that story, I thought, ooh, that's strange. You know, he was really mean to those animals, and why? And I always like to think, who do I identify with? And at that point in my life, I identified with that woodsman. I was always hiring storytellers, setting up bookings, uh, working with the arts. Uh, so I was like the protector, ma- paying them. And then one day I said to myself, wait a minute, why don't you identify with the musician? You're out there telling stories too. And as soon as I did that, those animals became like, I'd like to make clay pots. But if I'm going to make clay pots, I'm not going to be focusing on my storytelling I'd like to spend more time with my children. Well, it's a sacrifice when you take any art form, if you really want to succeed. Sometimes you don't have as much time and energy to do everything you want to do, and you have to make choices, quality time. Well, there's, there's another. I mean, if the wolf is hunger and the fox is intellectual, sort of like belittling, and the rabbit is fear, these are traditional, yeah. you know, and then the woodsman is just someone who enjoys and respects, then you see the, you know, that's the story of the artist right there. Right there. Yeah. Beautiful. And so it's fun, I think, to play around that way with um, the different stories and see what it means to you. You never, I would never tell my audience that, telling the story. I call that the subtext, that uh, right in the middle of telling a story, I might think, oh, that's why my sister did that to me. Now I get it. But I would never tell the audience well there are people there are robert bly you know that's what robert bly's stick is he's got this couple stories iron john whatever is that robert bly yeah Yeah. you know so he's got this couple stories and he's just working it through yeah um so some people would actually go so far as that that's an interesting issue and we've kind of gone that's good we started with one and we're going on something else this is this is important to me this is something i struggle with i refuse completely to say the moral now, sometimes, yeah, I'll Ruth's in the same boat here. Sometimes the moral comes out of me, and that's okay. I'm telling a story, and at the end I say, and that's what happens when, you know, that's, you know, the rattlesnake story, or the boy picks the rattlesnake, the rattlesnake bites him. And it's like, at the end, I can't help myself. I just say, and that's what happens when you trust someone who you know is a liar. And sometimes, sometimes I say that, sometimes I don't. And more often than not, at the end of a performance, even if I'm hired as an artist into a school setting, the comment I get back from the school administrator is, you didn't explain the story. And to me, what I'm hearing is, you didn't insult the intelligence of my children. <laughs> and I can see her agreeing with me. So I want, I want to hear what your take is on this. Uh, I think it's a cultural thing. Um, there are certain cultures that it's very important to them to state the moral. And uh, sometimes they can make fun of it after, in another way, too, or say it in, in a way. But I agree. I absolutely concur that um, to respect the intelligence of the audience is just the way I'd like to hear it stated. Um, sometimes uh, I blurt things out, as you may have noticed. And uh, I remember once purchasing a book someone recommended called The Man Who Lives Alone. And I read it and thought, oh, I'm so sorry I paid eighteen ninety five for this book about this man in his house and but I had my radio show and I thought well I paid this money for it and I'll tell it on the radio and I brought it and uh, told the story and it was turning the pages as I was telling it not reading it but turning the pages and then when I closed the book I leaned over and said to the mic well folks I guess that's the difference between living alone 
and being lonely. <gasps> I got it. I hadn't truly gotten it when I had read it quickly before. So it was like more for me than uh, for my radio audience. And frequently there's a, a, a story in the Magic Orange Tree where the least loved child ends up taking care, brings in the mother who was cruel to her, really cruel to her. But at the end, she's the one that takes care of her. And I find that that happens a lot in life, that uh, parents tend to go to the child that they were the cruelest to, and that's the one, for some reason or other, ends up taking care of them. And maybe after, with an adult audience, maybe after the applause, some kind of comment like that could be made. But it's, I put it in the same category, Eric, with um, at the end of a story, if someone tells this wonderful story and it ends and... And the color purple was added to the rainbow. And when we see the rainbow, ever since that day, purple is one of the colors. And that story is How the Rainbow Got Its Colors by Jane Smith. And I feel so sad. I was in that magic world. I was on that rainbow. I was looking at purple. And boom, I'm back into reality without a chance to be guided out. And I don't mind if everybody in the audience claps. And then the storyteller says, and that story and explains where the story came from. I've at least had a little bit of time to process that magical world and, and be escorted out of it. And it's the same thing frequently with morals. Some stories like these fables and things like that, the moral is an integral part of the story, and it's pretty difficult not to. So maybe you and I should brainstorm on creative ways to do it so that the next day we were walking by a house, we heard a mother say to her child, uh, don't something sour grapes and 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 then i thought oh that's the story i just heard or you know some creative way to do it but um it does seem very often to uh denigrate or cheapen the the experience of being in this other world and you know they say the truth that you discover for yourself or the theme you discover for yourself is the one you'll always remember so sometimes driving in your car three weeks after hearing a story and suddenly it makes sense and you get it. That's going to live with you forever. Whereas if someone tells it to you and you might think, oh, well, if that's what that story is about, you know, be kind to everyone and help everyone, then I didn't like it. Forget that story. Whereas if I just, it just ends with whatever happened, then you think, oh, and you take that and it becomes part of, part of you. That's what happens to stories. You absorb them. So you've written a number of books, eight books in all. And I just wondered if you could just share a little bit about the process, because clearly to write eight books, you must have a little bit of success. Um, a lot of people don't get past their third book who are writers. And so if you could just talk about what about that process has, has allowed you to build on that success. Well, I was born year the rat, and that's supposed to be the year of the doer, a person who likes to do projects and do things. And all of my books are, are very different. One is on plants of Marin County, how the Indians use plants, and beginning biology. And A book that maybe would address your point the best is The Golden Axe, which uh, is 33 full versions of the same story from different countries, and then 33 abbreviated versions of the same story. And it was because I was fascinated by the idea that stories change when they cross boundaries and languages not just the names of the characters and not just the foods but the kinship patterns and uh, it would never be with a mother and daughter in one culture telling that story it's got to be a father and son because that's the way their culture is organized ironically the head of the education department put a little note on the back of that book this book is 
especially useful for literacy programs. So literacy programs all over the country ordered 50 copies of this book. Uh, in my heart, I truly believe that any folktale collection is very useful for literacy. Although I do think it's interesting to see how one story is uh, changes. And, and, and I did include some puppet scripts and a game and things like that. Uh, but I think if somebody's going to, you have to have a missionary zeal and know, just like telling a story, who is my audience? Why am I writing this? Uh, my first books on uh, storytelling, which were collections of previously published essays on storytelling, I just felt these should all be in one place, and so I just submitted them all together in a book. And then as I published 18 more, I thought, oh, why not a sequel, and put those together and found they were being used as supplementary texts in storytelling classes at various universities because it really wasn't something that was so oriented towards teaching storytelling and and telling stories. My newest book that's coming out is uh, String Stories, which I'm a beginner uh, using string. I have a limited repertoire of string figures, but and there are many, many books out on how to make string figures, wonderful books. But there's only one or two books that address string stories, and I found them very difficult to use. So in my missionary zeal, I wanted to access, the, make this available to people that had never done string figures to open up this approach, which is very popular in Pacific Rim countries still today. There's competitions on Easter Island with string stories. and um, In the Northwest, the Indians are still doing string stories. And it's very important in their cultures to tell their cosmology. It was the first picture books. They would tell the story and make the shapes with the string. And I love that idea. And so... Uh, I created some original string stories and some are traditional string stories. Some are traditional string figures and some are original string figures. So it's um, a very accessible book, I hope, that people will be able to pick up and, and use right away. Yes, indeed. This is Baba Jamal Karam, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf, the only storytelling place on the internet where you can hear the true facts true feeling about storytelling uh, do you have an offer you want to share? well yes I have this missionary zeal about making string figures how about if we offer a String, a special string that works well for making string figures, and the directions to make one string figure to the first 20 people that contact you, Eric. Would that work? Okay, let's do that. How do they contact you? My email address is speakingoutto at comcast.net. That's speaking out as one word and then the number two at comcast.net. Oh, okay. What's the title of your books to look up on Amazon? Books on Amazon. Smiles, that's 101 Silly Stunts, The Golden Axe, About Story, More About Story, You're On, 101 Tips for Public Speaking, which actually all of them apply to storytelling as well. And uh, your most recent book is called? A Loop of String. Uh, and is that currently on Amazon or it might be by the time of that interview? Yeah, yeah. Depending on when your show is. 
So I have three offers for listeners. The first offer is that if you're a beginning storyteller and you're trying to learn about how to use storytelling, and this has been a great show talking about basic elements of storytelling, I have a free e-course called Zen and the Art of Storytelling. It's a nine-part e-course. And this this e-course, you can find it at www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash storytelling. Just sign up and you'll get the emails. And then I'll send you other things maybe once a month. No more, I promise. The second offer is I have this blog called the Art of Storytelling Show.com. And if you go there to that blog, Art of Storytelling Show.com, and you can write comments on all the different artists. And I know many, many storytellers and many other performers who are listening that you struggle to get the visibility you need. Well, currently, my site has very good rankings with Google, and there are very few places in the world where you can get links so easily from a site that ranks so high in the word storytelling, under the words art of storytelling, under the word storytelling with children. So if you were to write a comment in one of the blog posts and to make sure to put your website in the link there, I will approve it as long as your comment is real, as long as you're really replying to what's happening in the interview. That will give you a very valuable link. Now, most people would charge you for this privilege. I say that each time somebody puts their link in a comment, I think it's worth 40 bucks. I'm going to go with 40 bucks because it's a permanent link. It stays there forever. And I'm giving you... I'm giving you that service free because I appreciate the comment you make. I appreciate your participation in this community. Take part in the community on the blog. Respond to the posts. Write about what appears there. Write about the episodes you hear, the interviews, the guests, etc. And the third offer is I have started a new podcast called Applied Storytelling. And I would welcome you to go listen to it in iTunes. Look, look up the words Applied Storytelling. You'll find it easily enough. Or go to the International Storytelling School and listen to the episode that's free there. Every month, I'll be releasing one free episode. They're only seven minutes long each. And three episodes that you have to pay for access to. If you're interested in that, go over to the International Storytelling School at the www.thestorytellingschool.com and check it out. So, Ruth, do you have any final words of advice for the international storytelling community? Just keep on storying. You know, like dreaming or sleeping, storying is, is a verb. And I just, one of the things that was interesting to me about this conversation is that I think we're reminded in this conversation that your belief is what powers the whole experience. So you hold up a sock. You believe the sock is real. You hold up a spoon. You believe the spoon is real. You hold up two spoons. Every an argument. You know, it's your belief that carries through the audience. And so, as storytellers, that belief is so essential to everything we do. And, and as, as beginners, we have to, you know, let ourselves build up in our ability to believe in this. I've found many times in an audience, they're listening to me because I believe they're going to listen to me. If I'm having a bad day, I'm distracted, I'm scattered, I don't have that belief, all of a sudden it's so much harder to get them to listen to me. And it's not because my material is that different, it's because my belief isn't there. You know, something, some other discouragement has happened and it's, it's suppressed some of my belief. 
And I just want to leave you with this idea that that it's it's important to when you're when you're examining how to use props that that you don't need much, just a little bit. It's like it's like flavoring in the sauce. I mean, there are puppeteers listening to the show, and then of course you're just you're a puppeteer who's also telling a story through puppets. But for many storytellers, sometimes just a little bit of a little bit of garlic or a little bit of uh, some people don't like garlic, so maybe a little bit of pepper, a little bit of salt can just add a little bit of flavor, and just one little prop here and there can give that show a different a different taste. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Eric. It's, it's been a pleasure. This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. Don't worry about it. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um.